Well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. And we are taking a four-week hiatus from the book of Exodus. And we're launching a series called Practical Evangelism. And let me just give you just a look at the next four weeks and what we're going to be covering. Um, Today is going to be Practical Evangelism in an Ambivalent World. Uh, next week, we're going to come, talk, come back and talk about practical evangelism in a lonely world. We've seen more loneliness this year, and, and so many hearts and minds are ready for the good news of Jesus Christ coming out of this year. Uh, week three, we're going to talk about practical evangelism for a hurting world. Um, we see more mental health crises than we've ever seen before, and we know that Jesus Christ is the greatest answer for our soul's desperate need. And then finally, we're going to be looking at practical evangelism in a confusing world. And we're going to be looking at the purity and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to call out all of the peripheral things that threaten to become primary things and make sure that every one of us have a clear, crystal clear understanding on what is the gospel in a world that makes it so unnecessarily confusing. All right. I want to um, show you six pictures And each of these pictures represent an evangelistic method. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to answer the following questions, hear me, in your head, not out loud. Maybe you can take a count on your hand or in your brain or on a piece of paper, and here's the question. Are these good evangelistic methods or are they bad evangelistic methods? Now, I'm not going to trick you. I am not going to trap you. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. I just want you to take note. Um, How many of these would you say are good evangelistic methods, and how many of these would you say are bad ones? Here's number one. Invite somebody that is not a Christian to an evangelistic crusade, sort of like this. Good idea, bad idea, not out loud. Number two. You give someone an evangelism tract. Now, you may not know what a tract is, but typically it's a piece of paper, a little booklet, and it's got a story, and it culminates in the gospel. This would be one I want to encourage you, never, ever, 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 ever leave your waiter or waitress this as a tip. They will hate Jesus, and it will take them 20 years longer to come to know Christ. But this is a good example of, of a tract. Good idea, bad idea. Forget about that tract, but just the concept of tracts. Number three, you stand at a street corner with a bullhorn and you proclaim the gospel. Good idea, bad idea. Okay, you wear a Christian t-shirt like this to spark spiritual conversations. Jesus is my lifesaver. Good idea, bad idea. You buy a billboard And it says something like this. It's your choice, heaven or hell. Now, I love how it says John 3.36 because you think it should say John 3.16. Go read John 3.36 when you're bored and then doubly ask yourself, good idea or bad idea? Number six, go house to house asking strangers to have a spiritual conversation. Good idea, bad idea. Now, how many of these did you write down and said, no, that feels like a really good idea. Village Church should train and sponsor people in these evangelistic methods. So I want to share with you two things we know about all of the methodologies that I just shared with you. Number one, with every single new year, each of these 
are becoming less and less effective and more and more offensive. So 50 years ago, it would have been very logical for a church's evangelism or outreach strategy to mimic or mirror what I just showed you. It was interesting is that there were many people who through these methodologies and strategies would actually come to faith in Christ. If they didn't work for someone or at least a group of people in a specific moment or season and time, people would not have kept repeating these methodologies over and over again. So historically, actually in America, many of these were proven to be very successful, but here's what we're finding. More and more, they don't bear fruit. People do not as much or as often come to faith in Christ through these methods. In fact, they are repulsed and repelled. Now, here's the second thing I want to I show you about each of these methods. Five out of six of them allowed you to share the gospel without requiring a personal relationship. Isn't that interesting? That the church's historically primary method of evangelism or methods were often void of personal relationship. And here's what we're learning more and more. If someone is statistically going to respond to a gospel message positively, <clears throat> they're going to respond positively because it was in the context of a personal, healthy relationship. Isn't that interesting? That we're living kind of in a new day, in a new time, in a new season where if you want to be the most effective in seeing people come to faith in Christ, we're having to lay aside some of the old strategies and get back to the good old one-on-one -on -one relationship that is vulnerable, transparent, and honest. Now, I want to be clear on a couple things. Has the gospel lost its power? On the count of three, everybody just say no. One, two, three, No. Were people more gullible 20 to 40 years ago than they are today? Uh, no, they are not. Here, here's the point. Communicating the unchanging gospel so that people hear it and understand it is changing. Let me say this again. Communicating the unchanging gospel so that the effect is that people hear it and understand it is changing. And there are multiple reasons why. Let me just give you a few. Number one, uh, in the mid-20th century, the name, the word Jesus, when we said it, it actually meant something to most people. Now, if I say to most people that I meet the name, the word Jesus, I have no idea what is going through their head. I don't know if it is their friend Jesus I don't know if it is a Mormon Jesus, a Jehovah's Witness Jesus, a Catholic Jesus, an Orthodox Jesus. I have zero categories. What is going on in their brain? Nothing. In fact, I can't even assume it. So before I can even talk to somebody about Jesus, I, I have to actually make sure we're talking about the same person because more times than not, we're not. People's factual knowledge of Christianity is almost zero. I mean, they have some cursory understanding of Christian things, but there's no ability to put it together so that it in any way resembles Christianity. In the mid-20th century, actually, most of America had a base knowledge of what Christianity is through the creeds. 
maybe through their grandma, their grandpa going to church at Christmas and Easter. And now the younger you are, statistically, it is very rare that you have any cursory knowledge of what Christianity truly is or is not. People's felt needs are very different. If you went into the mid-20th century, um, the vast majority of Americans who were born and raised in this country knew deep down inside that Jesus was probably the answer to their problems. Now, the greatest felt need, it's very simple, and this is happening with the vast majority of your kids especially, the greatest felt need is the need for self-actualization, to become my truest self, to decide who I really am and to become that person. Jesus, as the answer to their spiritual, emotional, psychological needs, isn't even in their categories. All this is culminating in a cultural shift in America in our emotional posture towards Christianity. Uh, let, me, let me describe for you in just one simple word the vast majority of Americans' emotional posture towards Jesus and Christianity. Ambivalence. Let me describe ambivalence in one word. Eh. <laughs> hey, Pastor Michael, how do you feel about ceramic cups? I mean, they're a part of my life. They're in my cupboard. They're kind of all around me. I drink coffee out of them. I mean, if I had to, I could probably drink coffee out of a plastic cup, maybe a paper cup, styrofoam if I'm feeling crazy. All, all cups go to the same place at the end anyways, right? How do you feel about Christianity? Eh. Hey, Michael, how do you feel about precious moments? The little figurine, porcelain figurine dolly things? Yeah. Eh. I mean, I had one on my wedding cake, I think, and it was pretty cute and adorable. I think we still have it. It's in a box somewhere. Like, my grandma, I think she had a couple, and then my wife's grandma, she has a whole bunch, and like, I know they're passionate about them, and like, it's a big deal to them, and that's cool. It's their thing, right? Like, they spend a lot of money, thousands and thousands of dollars. There's a museum, ah! There's a Precious Moments Museum. It's a true story. Actually, go look it up online. It's a trip and a half. How do I feel? Eh. I mean, that's your thing? That's not... Eh. Taco Bell. Hey, Pastor Michael, how do you feel about Taco Bell? Well, now that you ask, eh, I, mean, I have some great memories in high school, fourth meal, anybody, right? But then I always kind of felt bad afterwards. I regretted it. And like, like, I see him everywhere. Like I drive by him every day. Like I don't even think twice anymore. But if you ask, I'm like, I got some good memories there. I mean, if you tell me you eat there, I'm judging you because don't we all know better now than to not eat at Taco Bell? But like, I mean, if that's your thing, whatever. How do you feel about Taco Bell? Eh. Welcome to the American emotional landscape towards what you are most passionate about in your entire life and your greatest identity. And now, somehow, I would love for you to know that without Jesus, you are empty. That he designed you and made you for him and he loves you and you need to be saved from your sin and God offers you freedom in Christ and you're like, eh. How do you share the gospel when the vast majority of people who don't know Jesus in your life are practically ambivalent to the good news of Jesus Christ. Open up your Bibles, Colossians chapter four, verse three. The uh, author of Colossians was a guy named Paul. Paul planted churches. Here's what he would do. He would go into a city. He would pray. He would pray, 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 pray. Lord, please help me. 
And then he would find specific groups of people. He would begin to have spiritual conversations with them. And if they led to uh, conversations about the gospel where people trusted in Christ, he would stay a little bit longer, and then he would start a brand new church in that city. When the Apostle Paul prayed, he prayed for something very specific, and you see this pop up in the letters of the Bible that he wrote. And it's two words that he would pray for. He would pray for an open door. What is an open door? It is a heart that is willing to listen to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, I need you to open a door this, this group of people are ambivalent. In his day, they were actually largely, there are many of them hostile. So he dealt with hostility and ambivalence. So here's what I want, I want to do. I want to share with you five big lessons from the Apostle Paul on open doors and how to share the gospel with a group of people that have no felt need whatsoever for the message that you are bringing to them. Lesson number one. Prayer is the key to unlock spiritual doors. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Here's what he says. At the same time, pray also for us. Why? That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I need you to get this. Spiritual problems need spiritual solutions. They need spiritual tools And you cannot, with logic, make somebody become a Christian. They need the door of their heart to be open through prayer, and they need the gospel so that they can hear and believe. These are spiritual weapons because the battle we're actually engaging in is a spiritual battle. And so here's number one. If you want to see this person in your life or these people in your life turn toward Jesus if you even want to have the opportunity for a conversation about this, where we start as the people of God is understanding this is a spiritual battle and I'm using spiritual weapons, so I'm going to begin to pray fervently for them. If you, by chance, have the privilege to be with somebody and you see an open door, I want you to hear me. There is a 99% chance that that person has been prayed over probably for a very long time by somebody else. And when you watch an open door, a heart that is even open to hear the gospel, I want you to understand that this is a sacred moment. It might have been their great-grandma the day they were born who prayed and prayed until she died for this little one to come to know Jesus. And nobody might have prayed for this person until the day you walked into their life and you saw an open door and you began to walk through it and they invited you in to share the gospel. It might have been a mother or a father or a brother or sister who labor in prayer for this person. I just want you to understand this. What you're walking into when there is an open door in front of you is a sacred moment. Do you have a child that you want to know Jesus. Pray, pray, pray. Every day, don't stop. Persistent prayer. Do you have a spouse that you want to know Jesus? You're gonna get on your knees and you're gonna pray. Do you have a neighbor and you're like, man, I would just love for them to know Jesus. They're just so ambivalent, they don't care, right? Then you just pray. You pray that God would open a door for the gospel. How do I know when there is an open door for the gospel, I want to just give you five just indicators. 
Indicator number one, if you've been praying, these are some things you might start to see eventually. A spiritual question is asked. Now, when somebody asks you a spiritual question, can you do me a favor? Listen to what they're actually saying. (laughs) Because we love to like hear like what we want to hear and then answer questions they're not even asking, right? Listen. Now, what I, what I want to encourage you to do is to not pull a Kramer. Do you guys remember Kramer from Seinfeld, right? Now, I'm not advocating Seinfeld, but go on YouTube and watch Kramer walks through doors, and here's what he does every time. Kramer never walks into a room subtly. He throws open the door. He's like, every time. Don't be a Kramer. Like, if you see an open door, you're like, ah, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for your Lord and Savior right now? Get on your knees and pray. Like, chill out. It's going to be fine. Watch. Maybe a spiritual question is asked. Number two, maybe a spiritual need is expressed. It's not uncommon that somebody will say something like, I'm going to make up something here, but um, hey, I'm asking for a friend. Um, By chance, what does the Bible say about fill in the blank? And and when people start to to be curious about the word of God, this this is a really special moment. They're spiritually intrigued, the door might be just creaked open a tiny little bit. Don't pull a Kramer. Chill out. Here's a third indicator. A spiritual observation is shared. Maybe they're like, you know what? You are an awesome neighbor. All of my other neighbors are cold-hearted and distant. Like, is this like because you're a Christian? Like, why are you such a killer neighbor? By the way, are all of you supposed to be incredible neighbors as a follower of Jesus? The answer is... That was not very passionate, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe in my heart that you believe in your heart that is your joyful privilege to be the most kick-butt neighbor on the planet. A spiritual observation is shared. Maybe somebody notices something about your life and they have a spiritual question. They're curious. If you live for Christ, you will be different, but hopefully in a way that blesses the people around you. Here's the fourth indicator, a problem only Jesus can fix might be an emotional issue, relational issue, mental health issue. And, and there are some problems that ibuprofen can fix. There are some problems a chiropractor can fix. And then there are problems only Jesus can fix. And when you watch some of these things happen, then you just get on your knees and you pray more. You're like, Lord, I see a, a door that's beginning to creak open, but would you open it so that I can share with them the actual resolution to their soul's greatest need? And you don't pull a Kramer. Did I say that already? Relax. Here's number five. Just a prompt from the Holy Spirit. You, you might have a friend, a family member, a child, something, and you're like, I just feel like the Holy Spirit wants me to talk to them. And, and none of these other indicators may be happening, okay? But can we just agree that the Holy Spirit knows something you don't know? Is that fair? Can we also agree that the Holy Spirit is always up to work in people's lives until the day they die? Like, you and I are aware of, like, such a small percentage of what God is doing behind the scenes. And if the Holy Spirit, which he honestly does quite often, asks you to do something that doesn't make sense, it's okay. Pray about it. Take your time. But maybe the Holy Spirit is just asking you to have a spiritual conversation because he's up to something in someone's lives. All right, lesson number two from Paul on Open Doors. Walk wisely through open doors. Look at chapter four, verse five. He says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So there is a wise way to talk to people about Jesus 
and there is an unwise way. Can I get an amen on the count of three? One, two, three. Amen. And you have watched people embarrass you as they unwisely blow open doors and act like Kramer and then make things much, much more difficult for you later. Verses five and six walk through um, what wisdom looks like. Here's what he says next. We make the best use of the time. There are good times to share the gospel and there are inappropriate times to share the gospel. Imagine with me, it's Thanksgiving at your house and you're the only Christian and all of a sudden Jimmy's there and you're like, hey Jimmy, you are in rebellion against God. I would love to tell you why, how you can get away from the wrath of God and be saved from hell and everyone's sitting there listening to you. Is that probably the right time and the right way to share the gospel with your non-Christian family member or friend? Everybody know, right? That's weird. That's weird. There are good times and there are bad times. It's interesting because Jesus and Paul both found themselves in the presence of very powerful people. And more times than not, they waited until they were asked before they talked about the gospel. Isn't that interesting? They waited until there was an open door almost all of the time. Let me just summarize here. A wise person waits for the right time while an unwise person is impulsive. Verse 6 gives us more wisdom. He says, let your speech always be gracious. Uh, let me describe for you a gracious person. Gracious people are, Christians are moral. I don't want you to hear me. Unoffendable. You could tell me the worst sins that you do, and let me tell you what I'm not going to be. Offended. I am not surprised by much anymore. But people love to be offended right now. And here, here's the deal. As a believer in Christ, the Bible tells me I am not to judge those who are outside of the church, who are not Christians. I'm not to condemn them. That is not my job. That is Jesus' job. Judgment happens in the house of God. Um, when it comes to this stuff, here's what I do. I'm unoffendable. And honestly, what I wanted to be able to do is to listen to you and help you find Jesus in the midst of all of this. I'm not going to compromise my moral standing because you're immoral, but honestly, like, okay, you're going to live that way. Like, it doesn't rock my world. I still, I still feel pretty unoffended right now. We're discerning, but we are not judgmental. I discern that what you're doing is inconsistent with the word of God, but I don't take the next step of condemnation towards somebody. Has it ever gone well for you when you condemn someone? Has anybody ever won you over by condemning you? <laughs> and, yet we, and yet we think condemnation and judgmentalism is going to be effective in evangelism, and it's just, it's just not. Gracious people are very patient with other people's process and time frame. You are unable to force someone to love and trust in Christ faster than God and them are working together. And so here's what a gracious person is. They're... They're pretty patient with your time frame. They realize, I, I can't make this go faster. I can doggone it, make it slower, but I can't make it go faster. Let me summarize. A wise person speaks with the kind of grace they are offering, while an unwise person is condemning and rude, especially. Here's another piece of wisdom in verse 6. He says, let your speech always... <laughs> Be seasoned with salt. One of my top, I think one of the top five best French fries on the planet is Chick-fil-A. I get so excited. Have you ever gone there on a Sunday? Oh, such a disappointment. <laughs> mm. So when you go 
every once in a while, something terrible happens. I mean, this is, it's a crime. You go through the drive-thru, you get in the car, and you drive away, and you reach in the bag, and you put the fry in your mouth, and there's no salt on it. Okay, I'm sure, I am sure that an unsalted Chick-fil-A fry is objectively, like, not terrible. But I am filled with, like, anger and here, there's like a story that goes in my brain. It's some 15-year-old kid who's not paying attention, and he's just zoning around, he's like scooping salt, and it's all over the floor, not in the fries. Then I get this fry, now I'm stuck. Am I going to go back and say, salt my fries? I'm going to be that guy? No. But let me tell you what happens when you take that potato thing, what do you call it? Waffle fry, and you put salt on it, holy smokes, you take, eh, and you make it amazing. You make it amazing. And it's so interesting, when I, when I think about the gospel that so many people share, it is not seasoned with salt. You're going to hell, God hates you, blank will burn, fill in the blank. Whoa, like, that is not salt, that's cayenne pepper, no, that's ghost pepper. <laughs> that like leaves me with a terrible experience. And there's something about the gospel that when you give it to somebody, it should take what is bland and it should be great news for that. It should make it better. Somebody should share the gospel and you should be like, that is really good news. If I believe that I was a sinner going to hell apart from Christ, this is incredible news. And if I believed in Jesus, like, like this would be incredible. What a blessing. What a, like the gospel should be seasoned with salt. And let me just kind of summarize this. A wise person shares a good news gospel while an unwise person shares a bad news gospel. Romans 2.4 says something really interesting. Paul says, do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So is leading with the wrath of God the best strategy to lead somebody to repentance? No, it's actually the kindness of God. Now, do we talk about sin? Yeah, there's no good news unless there's bad news. That's for sure. But is wrath going to lead them to trust in God? No. What's going to lead them statistically, according to the scriptures, better to trust in Christ for a lifetime is that they are compelled by the love of God for them, that God is offering them adoption as sons and daughters, is offering to forgive them and redeem them and heal them, is offering them new life and eternal life. Like there are so many ways to season the gospel with salt. The gospel is salt, but I'm sad to hear so many Christians offer a bland, saltless gospel that honestly sounds like bad news more than it is good news. Let's get some more wisdom from verse six. He goes on, he says, so that you may know how to answer each person. It's interesting that wisdom is going to listen before it answers. And I love that it talks about each person because no two person's questions or stories are the same. That there is something relational and personal when it comes to evangelism in an ambivalent world. That there's something where you actually hear the heart of what they're saying and you respond to that person individually and personally. Let me give you a, a simple tool that I think every Christian should have in their arsenal. It is three simple words. You find yourself in a spiritual conversation and you might feel like you're in a little bit over your head. Here's the three words. I don't no. I cannot tell you how many times I'm in a conversation. I'm like, 
that was a that was a really good question. I don't even know. I need. Can I have some time to think about that? And if they say no, I'm done. Well, then they really really wasn't an open door. It was an angry heart. Here, here's another follow up. I don't I don't know. Would you be opening to like study this together? Because I'd like to go deeper on this issue. And you're asking the question. Here's another one. I don't know. Um, I'm actually really curious. Would you want to come with me? I'm going to have a, a cup of coffee with my pastor. Do you want to join me and uh, talk to him about that? I don't know is one of the best questions because you feel like you have to ha- know everything and have every answer, and I just have good news for you. Um, you need to be armed with the gospel, and it is okay after that to say, I don't know. A wise person listens first, while an unwise person pulls a Kramer, blows open the door, and speaks First. All right, lesson number three on open doors. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Behind every open door is an adversary. If you can see an open door, can the evil one see an open door? The answer is yes. If you're aware of it, he can be aware of it. And so here's what we find with the Apostle Paul. I, I think this is such an incredible text. He says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. There are a whole bunch of people in Ephesus that are open to hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and there are many adversaries. So I want you to understand this. The moment you sight an open door, there's a conversation where somebody is willing to engage the gospel, probably because you're already in relationship with them. Know that there will be immediate war in the spiritual realm. So does your prayer ever stop? Definitely not. Um, I'm not going to put this on the screen, but turn with me to Acts 13, 48. And I want to just give you an illustration of what this looked like for the apostle Paul. He says this, when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. This is Paul preaching. This is one of these sacred moments. He gets a whole bunch of people. He shares with them the gospel. They rejoice. They glorify the word of the Lord. And then Luke says this, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the region. But the Jews, who all throughout the New Testament are just standing against Jesus Christ and the gospel and people being saved. But the Jews, they incited the devout women of high standing, basically rich women with a lot of influence, and they basically said, make it impossible for this this gospel of Jesus to spread. And the leading men of the city, basically the powerful politicians of the city, And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district. Now, what do you imagine that Paul and Barnabas did? Did they cry? Did they run back and sacrifice their lives? Kill me! No. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to a new city, Iconium. Well, what about all the new Christians they just left behind? Here's what verse 52 says. And the disciples, those who had just trusted in Jesus, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. God took care of them. God took care of them. 
I, I want to encourage you because as you see an open door, there will always be an adversary of some sort. There will be a person. There will be something that comes up in their life that just draws them away, that distracts them so they don't have to face the open door questions that they have. Pray, pray, pray against it. Pray against it. And this is everywhere Paul went. Every time there was an open door, people started coming to Christ, there was always persecution that rised up against them. Here's lesson number four on open doors. Not every open door is your personal responsibility. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says this. Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord. This is interesting. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went to Macedonia. If I had an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and my son was in danger, would I leave that gospel opportunity and go after my son? The answer is, you better believe it. I have a couple core convictions. One is that my personal responsibility before anything else is my relationship with my God, my wife, my son, you, and then the world. And if something is in danger, and and even though there's an open door, I'm going to walk away from that, and I'm going to tend to my highest priority. But here's my conviction. We're, We're a family. We're an army of believers. The Lord can raise up anywhere, anyone, anytime. And here's what I've learned. Just because there's an open door in front of me does not mean that it is mine to walk through. And almost always, here's how you can discern that. If your relationship is not ready for that conversation, some of you know that if you walk through an open door that you're watching, that it's actually going to harm your relationship more than help. The Holy Spirit very well may at times say, not yours. Correct. There is a door open. I want you to pray for that door. But I'm going to bring somebody else to walk through that door. Now, this is not a reason for you to never talk to anybody. Uh, You're... Your sinful, afraid heart at times might be like, oh, not my door. (laughs) There's a door, not mine, right? If fear is the reason, that is not a legitimate reason to not walk through an open door. But sometimes the Holy Spirit will prompt you. You'll be like, something doesn't feel right about me having this conversation. And that is okay. I want to share with you three so what's. Each of them start with the letter P. And if you've been around Village Church for some time, you've heard me say this probably multiple times. First, so what is pray? historical ambivalence to Jesus and the gospel, when you have a a whole culture that is just, eh, it has historically only ever been turned around when two things happen. Number one, it's usually regional, and there is a group of people who often and sometimes for many years have been praying for God to move in a community or a region. And so there's a faithful group of people praying in advance for a move of God. Number two, at the right time, God raises up people to preach a pure, simple gospel in a way that that generation and culture and region understand. But before you see a move of God, if you look all throughout church history at revivals or different things, there is always a group of people praying fervently for salvation and repentance to come to this group of people, community, or region. And and the first command and encouragement uh, that we give to you is just pray, pray, pray. 
It might be an individual in your life. It might be an entire family that the Lord has put on your heart. It might be your personal family. It might be a cousin or a nephew. It might be a, a neighbor. It might be your kid's class at school. Begin to pray. Because great moves of God are preceded by prayer. Number two, pursue. When the door begins to creak open, engage whatever opportunities are there. Just have conversations. If you have a relationship with someone and they are willing to begin to talk about spiritual things, praise God. That is a movement of God right there. It's sacred. Be careful. Be gentle, be bold, be wise. Pursue. This is where most of us go, and then we run away and nothing happens. But I'm telling you, if you start praying, watch slowly and steadily, you will begin to see doors begin to open. And here's the third P, persuade. Pray, pursue, persuade. You may not have the best answers to all of their questions. By the way, your best answers to their questions are not what will cause them to trust in Christ. They are good and they are right and we should study and be on the ball. And when you don't know, I gave you a tool earlier which is I don't know. That's good, that's fine. What you need to make sure is that you have a clear, simple, pure gospel, which is why we're gonna have an entire sermon what the gospel is. But you need to be armed with a pure, simple gospel. It's interesting because there are some of you, not many, but there are some of you who are what the Bible calls an evangelist. And here's how you know you're an evangelist. Um, When you preach and share the gospel, people actually respond and begin to trust in Christ. Like you bear spiritual fruit. But Paul has to say to Timothy, he doesn't say, be the evangelist you are. He says, do the work of an evangelist. And so even if you're not wired or made to be an evangelist, what has God called us to do? It has been to pray for open doors. As they creak open, pursue those. And at the right time, when somebody is really inviting you into these conversations, persuade and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Do you remember when you first trusted in Jesus? Do you remember the season? Maybe it's the moment. What I, love about that, what I love about that season or that moment is that someone somewhere had the courage and the love for you to gently and appropriately bring the gospel to you. But behind the scenes, what was the Lord doing? He was working, preparing, dismantling, showing you the utter frailty of all the idols of this world. It happened at the right time, in the right place. Some of you were older. Some of you were kids. Some of you were teens. Some of you were in your 60s and 70s. Like, I don't understand the Lord's time frame, but he's, <laughs> he's, he has his own way of doing things. I want you to remember that moment. And, and that person who shared the gospel with you, someone before them shared the gospel with them. And someone before them shared the gospel with them. And this goes all the way back to Jesus and the first disciples. He arms them with a pure, simple gospel. He sends them out into the entire world. And one by one, relationship by relationship, person by person, people hear the gospel and respond to a pure, simple gospel to trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, In in a few minutes, we're gonna celebrate communion. Don't look down. They're not there. Village churchers, I know you're used to them. Some of you are freaking out. I don't have communion under my chair. It's gonna be a little different today. In a few minutes, we're gonna celebrate communion, but I I just wanna invite you to remember 
how gentle and gracious and patient God was with you. And then I want you to think about the people in your life that you would love to see come to know Jesus and remember that he is just as gracious and patient with them as well. And then as we think about communion, I want to draw your hearts and minds back to the cross because God loves you so much that he resolved our greatest issue, which is our sin, which has separated us from him. God has loved you so much that he gave Jesus and Jesus, his son, willingly died on the cross and he took your punishment in your place. You will never have to bear hell because Jesus bore it for you. And if you ever have to wonder if it was accepted by God, if it was a legitimate payment, the father raised him from the dead, a declaration that this truly was the son of God and anybody who trusts in Christ can have eternal life. I want you to go back to that. I want you to remember that everything you have in Christ today is yours because someone was faithful and because Jesus paid the price for your sins. So now communion is a little bit different this morning. And, and uh, if you, when you came in, there was uh, communion cups that you could get when you came in. But if you did not get them and you want to participate um, in communion with us, there are going to be cups in the back of the room. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a time of silence. It's just a time to reflect and to remember your personal story of salvation and the cross. When the time of silence is done, we're going to sing a song. And as we're singing the song, I want to encourage you to go to the back of the church and to grab the elements. At the end of the song, um, we're going to partake of the elements together as a symbol of our unity in Christ. Some of you are visiting here. It's your first time at Village, maybe second, and you don't know if you should be taking communion. Um, Here's our rule. It doesn't matter where you go to church. Have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ? If you have made a decision to trust in Jesus, then we want to invite you to partake of communion with us. Some of you are here, you've never trusted in Jesus, and you're like, I'm not even a Christian, and I'm coming to a sermon where they're talking about sharing the gospel with me so that I come to Christ. But maybe today is the day where you're like, you know what, I I know that I should have trusted in Christ a long time ago. And today is the day where I'm going to place my faith in Jesus. And if that is you today, when the elements come by or when you go get them, um, I want to encourage you to partake and let your partaking be your personal declaration that you believe in Jesus. So let's take a moment of silence. And again, as soon as the music starts, I want to invite you, if you don't have the elements yet, Tara in the back, she has them, and you can come grab them in the back and come back to your seat. Let's have a time of silence.